question time. Ready. In the movie of your life, who plays the uh, principal players? You and... What period in my life? You're choosing. Hmm. I guess... I'd probably pick my, like, mid-twenties. Okay. That was, like, my favorite time. Sure. Maybe when I was in Bobcats, my first band. Okay. And we went on tour. Oh, okay. That'd be a lot of fun. That'd be a good movie. Yeah. Who would play you? That's tough. Yeah. Kate Blanchett. <laughs> really? <laughs> you want, a, like, a... a you, you're going to take that route, huh? Well, I mean... It's bold. I, I appreciate it. Let's offer it to her, and if she's not keen on it. What about if we make a biopic of you and the Bobcats, but we just splice in scenes from her in Blue Jasmine as you? <laughs> so people saying, like, pointedly to someone who's off camera, Hey, Ryan, <laughs> what do you think about this? And then cut to Blue Jasmine. Yeah. I mean, we could probably make that work. I wonder how much, like, do we need her to sign off on that? Unless you own the rights to some of her footage, <laughs> I would imagine so. Dang it. Uh, who would play your bandmates? Um, Ashley would have to be, uh... I mean, you can you can Hollywood this up if you want. Yeah, you know? yeah, I'm thinking. Uh, well, one of the other bands... Members in the band that we toured with should be like Shawling Woodley because oh, because everything you do has to incorporate her somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And then Emily Blunt, who I also oh. think is a star. We'll, okay. throw, we'll throw them together. They're a band. <laughs> Are they like the opposing band that you're competing with in the battle of the bands? <laughs> well, I thought we were on tour together, but oh, okay. um, <laughs> uh, maybe at the end we're just both so good that we have to compete against each other. Like you, you rose through the ranks and you formed a, a common you know, sense of, of brotherhood and kinship, and then at the end you're forced to fight one another. Yeah, but and then, like, we call it off at the very end and say, no, we're a team, and then we play a song together oh, that yeah. we just wrote. Or maybe one that we've been working on the whole tour, and then we're like, we wrote this on tour. I want a happy ending. <laughs> this is a feel-good summer romp. You want William Hurt to jump into the back of the car at the end of your movie? <laughs> I've loved you this whole time, Ryan. <laughs> Cut to Cape Lanish. <laughs> <laughs> Saying something horrible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm, we'll keep uh, we'll keep workshopping that. Okay. How about you? Uh, I'd have to be played by Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, your lookalike. Yeah. And really... We could just show episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> and they'll, ju they'll just say Matt instead of Mac. Yeah. Sometimes I hear them as Matt. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll just, instead of Patty's Pub, it'll just be a bookkeeping firm. <laughs> we could easily uh, fix that in post-pro. Yeah. I mean, there's clients coming in and out all day. We'll just, you know, I feel it, it, it's a, a, a easy switch for... You know, a modern Hollywood editor. Can I can I ask who would be the Frank of your workplace? <laughs> I'm I'm envisioning sort of a Eddie Murphy nutty professor situation where I play all my roles. Oh, <laughs> with cool. just little to no costumes. Okay, and uh, if uh, or Rob McElhenney, 
think is his name. Uh, he Rather, he's playing all the roles. Oh, okay. Um, sans that, I've always had an itch to have a biopic. Unfortunately, she's passed now, but I want Elaine Stritch to play me and my entire family. <laughs> she's the talented one. So yeah, I'm not sure. Fortunately, she's passed, so... Hey, that didn't stop uh, Tupac? Is that who performed at Coachella? Well, unfortunately, I don't think Elaine Stritch had recorded her Matt Fisher biopic uh, before passing. We were still in uh, contractual negotiations at that point. Yeah, that's right. You were a real stickler on some of those details. <laughs> well, I wanted it to be a gritty R-rated affair. <laughs> And she wanted to be, you know, more of a, a Ryan Whedon feel-good romp. Oh, yeah. Which she's famous for. <laughs> she she was real insistent on having William Hurt jump into the car. The <laughs> of course, she's playing William Hurt. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just because she wanted that extra, like, you know, point on the end there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I played this many roles. <laughs> Maybe it would have, like, evened it out to a nice 60 or something like that. Do you know she never wore pants? Ever? Like, she wore tights and, like, long shirts. Hmm. But, like, she would not wear pants. Why is that? She just didn't like them. Hmm. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah? I think, uh... I mean, it was, like, proper stockings, I guess. Yeah, but... yeah. That makes me want to go back through 30 Rock and, and spot her wearing pants. No, she, like, I've looked... Hmm. Like, maybe... In like a winter scene or something, you know, she's wearing some sort of ski ensemble. Feels like I'm wearing nothing at all. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I've always had, maybe I've told you this, uh, she told a joke once on the Ellen show that really made me not like her very much. Oh, really? Yeah. She said she was talking about doing a show in Florida right after or during a hurricane, a major one that went through there. And she said something like, we tried to do the show there, but it blew away. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of a, I don't know, low-hanging fruit, but not in necessarily a good way. Yeah. I just remember Ellen's reaction was, that's not funny. <laughs> that was, it, it, it's not like uh, that uh, Friars Club roast that happened just after 9-11. Oh, and yeah. like Gilbert Godfrey got up there and like didn't do very well. And the next person got up and said, Hasn't there been enough bombing in this town? <laughs> <laughs> it was serious, like two weeks after nine eleven. Oh, that's right. He had that's on the um, that movie, um, The Aristocrats. Oh, you're right. They you're talk right. about that, yeah. And he that's what he does. He goes into that bit because he's finding out that all of his nine eleven jokes aren't landing oh, the way yeah, he wanted yeah. them to. That's right. But you know, you can laugh now. Yeah. They, uh, they haven't won because we're still laughing. You want to talk about the movie? I do want to talk about the movie a lot. Uh, this week, we watched, uh little independent film from the early 90s called Clean Shaven, uh, directed by Lodge Kerrigan, starring Peter Green, although 
he might be known best as the rapist cop from Pulp Fiction. That's how I know him. Yeah, I, I can think of this movie and Pulp Fiction. And that's <laughs> the end of my list. Um, and I'm sort of curious to know your thoughts on this movie. A, I want to know, when did you watch this movie? Yesterday. Okay. <laughs> this is like a record buffer time between you watching yeah. the movie. <laughs> pretty much. I'm usually movie. scrambling last minute cramming, but I had time yesterday. I I loved this movie. You know, last week we were you mentioned how I don't know if it was on the podcast or post podcast, but you were talking about how you sort of like movies that have an air of ambiguity to yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And then I realized while watching this, I was like, oh, this might be right up Ryan's alley. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I liked I liked a lot of things about this movie. Um, not the least of which is just the subject matter. It's something that doesn't get broached the very sort of often. schizophrenia from the point of the schizophrenic. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not... I mean, it's it's told closer to what his mode of thinking. Right. Like, the, the way that the sound sort of has, has no association with the images. Right. That there are things that are just in his head. Uh, yeah, the director really kind of puts us in his frame of mind... We're experiencing what he's experiencing for the most part of the film. And he kind of jumps around in time, too. Like, he'll just be at one moment driving, and then the next thing he's just, like, at his destination. Yeah. Or, like, somewhere. And then he's kind of like, oh, we've just sort of appeared in this place. So it's, like, sort of like the main character's having, like, these moments of lucidity kind of as he jumps around. Yeah, because it kind of fades in and out. Even at the beginning, it shows him in an institution. Right. And then it fades to him in a car driving someplace. So, you know, we don't have the whole story. We know that he was in an institution and we know now that he's not, but we don't know why, you know, was he released? Did he escape? Right. You know, that sort of thing. But, uh, I mean, when I watched this years and years ago, I want to say seven or eight years ago now, Mm -hmm. uh, it was sort of one of those like lessons in cinema because, and I don't want to give too much away. I'm going to try and describe this without spoiling anything. Mm-hmm. So there's an event that happens near the beginning. You know, there's the girl with the soccer ball. Right. And we see her, and we see him get out of the car, and then we hear her screaming and right. the sounds of, uh, like, a thud, mm-hmm. like, like, being hit. Uh, then as the movie progresses near the end, we find out that, what we sort of assumed might not be totally accurate right. based on what we heard. We didn't see anything. Right. We only heard things and we made this assumption based on these things that we heard. And it, it was one of those lessons in, in movie watching that, you know, we, we make these assumptions. We don't even think that we've made these assumptions right. until someone points it out. Right. Uh, and you know, we, it's not, it's not on the screen. It's not in frame you know, what happens. Right. So we'll never really know what happens. We can only kind of assume or, or give it our best guess. But yeah, that's the scene, you know, we, we go through almost the entire movie on a certain assumption and we get to a certain point and we find out that assumption might be wrong. Right. Might be. We don't, we don't know for certain one way or another. Right. Uh, I was led to believe, I kind of fell in the, uh, into the, into the category of that, oh, we 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 are making assumptions about him that aren't true in the way that like the cop that's been that was following him or like the librarian 
was kind of making these assumptions about him because he has this mental illness, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that like the director's kind of trying to show that too, is that like, this is so, it's so easy to jump to this conclusion because this guy has a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I mean, quite right. He's, yeah. <laughs> he, he's acting. This is not somebody you want to, you want to like say, come into your restaurant. <laughs> like, right. I've had to deal with people like, not necessarily like this guy, but definitely people who are having mental issues and have to, oh, I don't know where to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd forgotten. It's it's strange. I remembered the, you know, twist, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. I remember the twist pretty vividly in my head. But the parts that I didn't remember are the parts you'd think I'd remember the most. Like, I didn't remember him actually, like, shaving or oh, yeah. cutting his hair and other things. Right. Uh, and I didn't remember him removing uh, the locator in his finger. Right. Uh, which are very memorable scenes. Indeed. Uh, so because I didn't remember them, they were still very shocking. It's uh, it's really visceral to see those things. Yeah. To see those things on screen because it's like... Unflinching. Yeah. And it's a sign of what somebody who has mental illness can do to themselves. Like, mm-hmm. this is an, ex- an example of somebody who's a danger to themselves. Yeah. Maybe not to others. Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, but definitely to himself. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I bite my nails sometimes, and just, like, <laughs> I was thinking that watching this scene, and, like, just, like, if you go too far and you pull it off and it bleeds a little bit, it's very, very painful. I have... In such an annoying way. <laughs> Nail torture is, like, one of those things in movies that I cannot, like, sit still for. Yeah. You know, character gets their throat slit in a movie, whatever. I don't think twice about it. But the moment, like, a fingernail or a toenail gets, like, peeled back, I freak the hell out. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it it really bothers me. Yeah, it uh, cuts you to your quick. <laughs> Maybe we should just put that subject to bed. <laughs> Don't leave me hanging. Now I'm thinking about all the times I've seen nail removal in movies, and I'm thinking, like, Johnny Mnemonic, where that guy pulls his thumbnail out, and he has, like, the last... Spoiler alert. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I thought this movie was Canadian at first, because of of the subject matter and how it's treated and how it's such a small story. Because uh, it's it, sort of sympathetic to yeah, mental illness. Yeah, it really felt like a Canadian. Like, I, I assumed it was Canadian. It's like, oh, those Canadians are always making really great films that are focusing on the small dramas. And then I looked are it they? up. I feel like that. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking of the Sweet Hereafter, kind of, and then uh, just in general, other Canadian dramas that I've seen are kind of focused on the smaller. That end of the world one that you like is Canadian. Yeah. But that's focused still. It's like it's the, if you compare that to like Armageddon mm. or something like that. It's definitely focused more on the people on a smaller, smaller scale. Um, but it also kind of like brings to light how mental illness affects others. Yeah, not just the person that has the problem. You know, the the mother or grandmother, depending on which perspective you're looking at it. Yeah, she really had to keep herself at arm's length away from her son. Yeah. Like, she charged him rent for the room. And, you know, when he left, she was sort of unperturbed by it. But she does kind of have, an, a, I don't want to say, like, a breakdown, but she does, like, finally near the end of the movie, really show emotion that she's genuinely concerned for him. 
and mm. you know, but she held it back really the entire movie. Uh, Do you think that's because she just couldn't get close to him again for fear of getting hurt? I mean, sort of like with the sweet hereafter, where Ian Holm really had to keep himself at a distance from his daughter, right? Just really be clinical about every interaction with her. It's sort of the same situation here that you know their relationship was you know tenant and you know property manager, right? Uh, and it, it couldn't be more than that, right? So, uh, did you know? Did you notice that like her dress was kind of the same color and pattern as the wallpaper in that kitchen scene? I did not notice that. I wrote it down because it was really distracting to me. She just seemed like she blended in with everything. And I wonder if he's trying to say something there where it's like he doesn't necessarily see a person. He just sees, like, this talking mouth that's in his home where he grew up. Well, I did notice that in that scene, her, like, mic was turned down. When she talked, Mm -hmm. it was at, you know, a whisper level. But when he's making a sandwich, you can very audibly hear him spreading the Dijon Mm, on the bread. Like, you can hear that front and center. But what she's saying is sort of like wallpaper. Like, you can hear it in the background, but it's not at the forefront. Right. Even though he's showing, like, shots of her mouth. Yeah. He sees it moving, but he doesn't understand, necessarily. Or we don't understand either, really. We just see her kind of talking. But you can hear other ambient noises just clear as a bell. Right. I, I mean, the sound in this movie, I would love to be, like, the sound editor or, like, the so mixer. Good. Because, like, the ambient noise, the way that they bring it to the forefront... And the way that they mix it and how the sound is really kind of a character in the movie mm-hmm. or helps drive the narrative. I can't think of a movie right off the bat that uses sound the same way. The only one that I would come close to is like Barbarian Sound Studio. Mm-hmm. Is that, I like that one a lot too. That, that's the one that popped in my head. But like this, yeah, this is a great movie for sound design and just like the implementation of it was really tops. Uh, I mean, and especially like even at the beginning scene, like we hear... What, what's going on, and we make an assumption based on what we're hearing, right. not what we're seeing. Right. Uh, so, like, the sound really plays into the fabric of the film. For sure. The sound effects. And, re- I mean, a lot of times the sound effects are, you know, not connected to a visual. Like, we always hear the radio. Mm-hmm. Changing uh, stations and static. Basically. Yeah. Uh, and we hear, like, the sounds of electricity, like, amplified, like, going through wires and things like that. Like, that's constantly happening. Right. And we don't know if this is necessarily in his head or if he's actually hearing it and just fixating on it. Or if it's just incidental music and, or like, yeah. soundtrack music. It's quite a, kind of ambiguous. Uh, but, yeah, I can't think of a movie that quite uses sound in this way. I mean, maybe Bourbon Sound Studio, but that is also about, like, a sound mixer. Exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> kind of has to. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I think, in a similar vein, the color palette of this movie was really interesting. It's all just, like, muted, earth mm. tones, mm-hmm. really drab. I mean, I, I wonder if that was by necessity, though, because the movie took a long time to release because Lodge Kerrigan, Kerrigan kept running out of money. Oh. So, it, it might have just been the... He had no choice but to be sort of dull in his cinematography. That could be. I mean, I don't want to say dull. Yeah, it doesn't distract. Yeah. But it was definitely something I noticed. Like, it's not the prettiest, brightest film to look at. Not Nor is the subject matter the prettiest, brightest no. subject matter to look at. Uh, I, I saw a lot of um, Fargo in this movie. Really? Yeah. I kind of so? feel like the Coen brothers ripped this movie off a little bit. Really? 
just in the cinematography, the stark, the starkness of it, it's kind of got a similar storyline where we're following a detective who's trying to piece together a murder and like the fallout of that murder on other people. It just seemed, I don't know, I kind of got, and the sadness of it all, just like mm. kind of the, the sadness that drapes over Fargo is also in this movie a little bit. Okay. I don't know if I see it, but I respect it. I mean, I definitely, there was like, you know, there's like a sad sex scene in this movie with the, with the policeman. Oh yeah. And just kind of focusing on that aspect of it. It just, it gave me the same kind of feels that Fargo does. Okay. Just that emptiness. I felt like this reminded me of Twin Peaks. Okay. Uh, sort of the, the, you know, gentle air of mystery to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, murder of a young girl. Sure. Well, I mean, in Twin Peaks, it's a teenage girl, and this is, you know, could be single-digit age girl. But, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It just, it had an air of, yeah, ambiguity. Like, everyone's talking about the same thing, or roughly the same thing, but they're not being explicit about the same thing. Right. You have to sort of infer and pick up what they're talking about, and... I don't know, I feel like it, it had the same air, aura about it as, you know, early 90s David Lynch. Sure. Uh, which we're both fans of. Indeed. Uh, I, for, for me, I, I always wonder why more independent films aren't like this. Because right. it doesn't utilize really anything big. Like, the big characteristic for me is the sound. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it has a, a good lean performance. Peter Green's good in it. And there's definitely some interesting visuals going on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially with with some of the more visceral parts to it. But what really kind of... So you know how, like, in Rushmore, or really any Wes Anderson movie, the movement of the camera really gives the film character. Sure. It's really sort of what sets it apart. I mean, even if the story and the acting is already, you know, exemplary... Mm-hmm the movement of the camera kind of gives it that extra something, like that, that signature to it. Right. And with Clean Shaven, it kind of feels like the sound is that way. You know, panning the camera from left to right is not a hard trick to do. Right. But when Wes Anderson does it, it you know, you suddenly feel like you're watching a Wes Anderson movie. And the sound in this, it's not hard to just turn up the ambient noise or turn down the... the uh, sound of the dialogue. Like, these things aren't hard to do, but it gave the film so much personality to mm-hmm. it. Uh, it's just, it's one of those little tricks that I feel, you know, most filmmakers don't even think about doing. Mm-hmm. Just making the noise a character, making it a, a big part of the storytelling process. Because if, if movies are supposed to be, you know, sight and sound... It just kind of, it makes me think that a lot of filmmakers are underutilizing sound. Sure, yeah. They're telling you what's happening rather than using the, you know, the elements of the medium, which are pictures and sound. Joel Schumacher could take a lesson from this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Joel, have you seen Clean Shaven? (laughs) I'd love to see his version of this movie. Yeah, oh, no! (laughs) I don't even want to think about it. (laughs) But, yeah, just, to me, it just seems very simple and easy and cheap, uh, like, from a filmmaking point of view. Sure, yeah. Just to change how the sound makes what you're seeing, like, how it changes the mood of the viewer. Right. 
and it, it does. Like you, you can make a viewer uncomfortable just by changing the sounds. Right. And it helps us to know when we're seeing things from the main character's point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and also when we're kind of stepping outside that and seeing him from other people's perspective. I'm we're, thinking specifically of like the library scene. Okay, I was going to say, like, really any scene with, like, the daughter and the adopted mother. Right. You know, it was, it was, you know, there was ambient noise, but you could hear them talking clearly. Pretty straightforward. And, yeah, and it really helped separate these scenes. It gave, you know, a sense of contrast. Right. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it seems like a very simple tool that most filmmakers... And I understand, if you're making a big-budget movie, you know, if you're Martin Scorsese and you're making a movie you might not have to, to think of the movie in this way. Right. But I feel like for independent filmmakers who are struggling to make a movie and get it known and to make it unique, the very set, you know, financial limitation on it. Right. That this is one of those tools that it's a dimension that they should be thinking in. Right. Absolutely. Uh, which really sets it apart. And sadly, it's sort of a tool that even like Lodge Kerrigan kind of dismissed as he went on. Oh, that's too bad. Like, he, he made, you know, decent movies after this, but not to the same effect. Mm-hmm. You know, this one definitely, I feel like he, he really put his heart and soul into it more than other ones. Yeah. And I feel like the sound design on this, there's a, I feel like the line really gets blurred bet- between sound design and soundtrack mm-hmm. on this. Because there were definitely some times when it felt like a really great avant-garde kind of soundtrack was mm-hmm. happening more than like something weird is going on in this guy's brain yeah but it could easily be argued the other way around too and i think that's great because it's like of course i like it because it's ambiguous but um, <laughs> also because it's just you know what is that difference you know well I, w- I was thinking about that as someone who's like done sound mixing you not me <laughs> you um would you feel that your work was sort of like, I don't want to say be sullied, but, you know, the focus was taken off it if they took, say, your sound mixing or your music and they, you know, overlaid it with someone else's work. Do you think that that, you know, would draw attention away from your hard work or would you appreciate the final product more? Um, I guess it would have to depend on how it's executed, but for the most part, if it's done well, like if I made a soundtrack and then the sound design just kind of covers it up and it works for that film then I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. But if it was if it was something where it's like this, the soundtrack or the sound design, whichever one I did, was integral to, you know, making the scene happen mm-hmm. and it got covered up by something else, then I'd probably be pissed. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it should always be in service of the movie. Sure. Um, whatever that is. And um, I would try to be egoless <laughs> sure. in this sure. situation. Um yeah, because the soundtrack was sort of drone-heavy. There was, like, feedback and, you yeah. know, just sort of uh, wandering tones going on. And then the sound mixing was sort of that way, too. Mm-hmm. You know, amplifications of, you know, ambient noise and stuff like that. That also sounds sort of drony and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so the two sort of blended together. And it wasn't always clear where, like, the soundtrack ended and the sound mixing began and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but I don't... It... it, I don't, it created an intoxicating cocktail for me. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. It's kind of um, just sets a mood and it just holds on to it for the whole thing. I also like that it's not afraid to be short. It's like a yeah. 79 minute movie. 
And that's fine. Like, it does not need to be any longer. No, it gets its point across just fine. Yeah. Uh, and I think it just... It gives you just enough time to sort of get into the mystery, get a feel for the characters, and then it kind of... I don't want to say departs, but, like, you find out more and then kind of leaves you with enough of the mystery. Yeah. And you I think we were talking about that last week, too. That's just... It's sort of nice when everything's not wrapped up in a bow when mm-hmm. there's space to think and breathe about the movie. Yeah. Uh, which this, I definitely feel, does. The, the focus of this movie is his mental health, mm-hmm. you know, and how it's an issue for him mm-hmm. and also how other people perceive him. Yeah. Because, um, like, for example, that library scene when he's basically punching yeah. the books... Everyone is just annoyed by him, you know? It's not like a situation where, like, this man needs help right now. They're all just, like, not wanting to get into it. And I, I wrote that down where it was, um, like, just before that, or pretty soon before that scene, there's a, like, more autopsy mm-hmm. situation. And that's really hard to watch. It's pretty gross. Yeah. It's, like, peeling skin back, and it's, it's gross. But then, I wrote, that was really rough, but then that scene comes, the library scene comes shortly after that and I was like well that's almost harder to watch I like the library scene because it does both like it, it, there's one scene where it's like a close up of his face and you're hearing the noises you know presumably that he's hearing right and while he's sort of like beginning to like bang his head against the shelf and then it cuts to silence and it's everyone in the library looking at him right. while he's doing that and there's that awkwardness of you know, here's this mentally ill person in a totally silent library yeah. hitting his head up against a, a shelf. Right. And nobody's doing anything and nobody's saying anything. And that creates a different type of tension. Like, we have the tension of the strange noises as we watch him, you know, hurt himself. And then mm-hmm. we have the tension of the silence Yeah, as everyone's watching him and not doing anything. And it's hard because I really saw myself in a lot of those patrons, which I really, that was, that's what made it hard was because it's like, oh man, I would totally be that person who's like, oh, that person's really annoying. Or like, somebody help them. Uh, I need to keep reading. You know, I'm like, should really (laughs) work on that. And and someone, because it's, he definitely just needed, well, I don't know what he needed. I mean, but just seems like he needed someone to come over and say, are you okay? Like, can I help you? Yeah. Boy, I don't know. You never know, especially with, you know, schizophrenia. Yeah. You never know who you're getting, so. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, maybe that's, it's a, a blessing that this movie's short, because that's a hard world to stay in, especially when you're depicting it so, so well. Mm-hmm. You want to hang out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's sort of weird, because it, it sort of, the movie kind of paints him as a villain, but only if you're, like, running with the assumption that you make early on in the movie. Right. By the time you get to the end, you know, you almost feel guilty for making that assumption. Totally. Yeah. You know, you think the worst of this guy, even though you haven't really seen him. You've seen him do harm to himself, but you haven't actually seen him do harm to other people. Right. But you operate as if he's almost a villain. Now I'm questioning how much Lodge, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much he's manipulating us and how much we're allowing ourselves to be manipulated because mm. it's like if you're making that assumption just based on some sounds yeah and him being at, there at the scene 
like, is that, is that our fault for jumping to that conclusion because we know he's got mental health issues or is it the director's fault for pointing us and being like, eh? Yeah. Eh? It's, yeah. it's a, I don't know, something to think about. Yeah. The daughter in this movie, um, was an interesting character because she's definitely like, I don't like you adoptive mommy. Mm-hmm. And then when her dad finally comes and finds her in the playground, she's like, yes, I want to go with you. Mm-hmm. And it's not really clear what happens to her actual mom, is it? Uh, no. We don't really know. I think it's inferred that she died. Right. At the hands, At... maybe, of our main character. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the assumption that we're supposed to operate on. Is okay. That he killed her. But I don't think they ever make that clear or say it explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I think the grandmother at one point says, like, I don't want... Like, she, she gave up the daughter because she was like, I don't want, like, the same fate or right. something like that. Right, right. Or she says something to, to that effect. And there's some voices in the very beginning that are talking... When he's getting released, talking about, like, well, under these circumstances, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Which makes me wonder if, like, if we're meant... If we're always supposed to be kind of in his head, like, maybe he doesn't know he did it. Yeah. Like... It could be. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> I listen to a lot of my favorite murder, and it's just like, <laughs> man, some of those like schizophrenic states that these like that some of these killers go into, they just they don't remember any of it. Well, isn't that why uh, uh, truth detectors aren't admissible in court because people will believe that their side of the story is the truth, right? They can, uh, like if they if they really believe that what they're saying is true. Mm-hmm then it's going to come up as true in the lie detector. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it actually is true. Yeah, or the opposite. Like, you could be just nervous about... Right, being on, the on truth. ...doing a lie detector test. Yeah, like, you could be hiding something else that's unrelated to this, and you're worried that that will come out. Or you're just worried that it's going to have a false positive. Sure, you know? yeah. And then it does. <laughs> <laughs> um... Just imagine if every STD test would come up positive if you were nervous while taking it. <laughs> I'd just be eating antibiotics every day. <laughs> well, somehow you've got this again. <laughs> I tested you two days ago. <laughs> just can't shake this bout of chlamydia. Thing up. up the meds. <laughs> I just like yeah, it, it gives a lot of credit to the viewer, this mm-hmm. movie, and that's always... A plus in my book. That's a, that's a good way to put it. It doesn't it doesn't placate to the viewer. Doesn't you know talk down to them at all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't spell it out for you. It just kind of says like, here's maybe how it is for somebody with this mental illness, and like it kind of it puts a plot in it to give you something to kind of drive through, which is great. But um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't give anything away. It just sort of lets you figure it out. Not to, you know, beat a dead horse, but that's really something that Joel Schumacher could learn to do better. Because <laughs> when you were talking about how every plot point is, like, through dialogue and explained to death yeah. in those movies, I'm like, oh, yeah, that is just shitty filmmaking. <laughs> to have your characters just say explicitly, like, how, they're, how they feel about everything and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Yeah. And then we come to a movie like this where... You know, there's not a lot of dialogue in the early scenes. Not at all, really. Uh, But we still get a feel for what's happening and what the character wants and how he's going to Mm -hmm. get what he wants and what's stopping him, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, And it's it's done so simply. Like, you don't even really notice how simple it is. Right. 
Yeah, it's a real simple movie. That's a good way of putting it. Like, there's not a special effect in this movie. Yeah, no, it's just, it's it's something that seems like anyone with camera and a talent for filmmaking could pull pull out. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, probably the biggest uh, expense, you know, other than, you know, the acting, like, the, the production costs, but, like, in, in terms of, like, what you're seeing on screen, you know, it was probably the self-mutilation parts. Right, that's, that's like, the special effects. Yeah, but even then, like, how expensive is fake blood? How Make expensive hand, is, yeah. yeah, one prosthetic finger? Right. You know, these things aren't super expensive, you know, in terms of, you know, film industry standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, yeah, it's just simple, you know. It's driven by, you know, what you're seeing and what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a few, you know, very modestly flashy things that happen. But uh, other than that, it's just based on, you know, sort of your eagerness to find out more about the mystery. Is there something else you watched that was... Well, it can be good or bad. I don't care. I watched Spartacus. Oh, I think you were talking about how you were going to watch that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> right? It was, it's exactly like you, what you think. Sure. Like if, you're going into, if you're going into it thinking, I'm going to watch a three-hour Hollywood epic from 1960, you got it. That's exactly what this is. And there are some crazy shots. Like, during the, the big war scene that happens, That like that's huge. I think those yeah. are actually people on the like some huge field marching and sure. junk. And so like, that's impressive, but like, that's about it. I mean, I remember watching that with someone and there was an overture, right. You know, and you know, there's nothing going on. It just says like overture and music's playing. And he looks over and he goes, is this for real? <laughs> is this actually happening? And there's an interact or intermission. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it does harken back to a time when, it's sort of odd to think of a movie having sort of static screen time. Yeah. Like, there's music playing, but there's no pictures going on. And I can understand an intermission. Movie's long, you gotta pee. But having it at the very beginning of a movie still strikes me as kind of odd. Yeah. I was thinking how odd it would be to be in 1960, and like, is this a date movie? Like, <laughs> how do you how do you convince someone to go out and see this? Uh, well, I mean, the sword and sandal things were, were big fodder. I don't know if they were date movie fodder, but... You Who know, would you a... go with? Just by yourself? <laughs> well, I don't think they showed it in drive-in theaters. <laughs> I'm sure if you were, you know, a uh, uh, proprietor of finer things in life, you know, you wanted to really experience great cinema... Then, you, yeah, you can go by yourself. Margo, we simply must go see the newest <laughs> Kubrick film. Oh, I hear that Kirk Douglas is just divine. Well, what else are you going to do in 1960? <laughs> Pop a pill? <laughs> Maybe both. Yeah. That's Saturday night. I mean, I always think that whenever I watch, like, a period piece from, like, you know, 18 or 1900s or something like that, I'm like... God, people had all the time in the world back then. <laughs> it took them hours to get dressed every day. Yeah. 
Ah, that free time. I'm so envious. That's why novels were like 700 pages back then, because you're like, well, I guess I'll keep reading. Yeah. <laughs> we're not due to be on horseback for another two hours. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say, like, I see these period movies, and I don't understand why people went to watch those either. <laughs> <laughs> Because I definitely get that impression sometimes. Uh, I've never seen Gone with the Wind. Really? Yeah. I. This is funny. Okay, so my roommate and I, a while ago, we used to watch... We'd always spend New Year's Day together and watch like a classic movie that was both a, uh, for a big hole for both of us. And one year we watched Gone with the Wind, which comes on two discs. Yeah. Um, and we put on disc two first. <laughs> and... We're perfectly satisfied with that movie. Let me tell you... <laughs> It starts out bleak. If that's oh, how really? It, yeah. If, if you start with this, like, if you start with this too, somebody dies in the first like ten minutes. Okay. Less than that. I was like, wow, this is really like insane for the first ten minutes of this movie. And then we realized, kind of, I don't know, half half hour in, like, oh, I don't think this is right. And then um, we just went ahead and watched the first disc afterwards and just said, well, you know, it's like <laughs> it's Pomo, Pomo Gone with the Wind. Uh, I remember. Back when I managed the the record store, you know we had DVDs too, and a woman came in. It was like I don't know, three p.m., four p.m., something like that, and she's like, "I need Gone with the Wind, right now." And I was like, "Uh, yeah, I, I I got this," and I was like, "Here you go." She goes, "I'm hosting a book club tonight, and I didn't read the book, so um. I'm gonna cheat and watch the movie." I was like, "What time is your book club?" Uh, and she goes, six thirty. And I was like, this movie's longer than that. <laughs> you will not have time to watch the whole movie before your book club starts. It's a long one. And she, goes, and she said, like, oh, maybe I'll just watch disc two. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing out on a lot, honey, but whatever. <laughs> maybe her friends didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is a book club except an excuse to get together to drink wine and gossip? Right, exactly. Might as well be recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Uh, well, yeah, do you want to hear what I what I think we should watch for next week? I do. Tell me. Tell I really me. struggled to figure out something this week. Something as a palate cleanser or... I just had no no idea where I wanted to go. I, I have... I, I don't want to say I've seen your list because I don't know what your list contains, but I've seen that you have a list. Yeah. And it's quite long. I know, and I just added two today. I can't... But know. neither of which are worthy follow-ups to clean shape. Neither of which are the ones I'm going to pick. I want to watch... Under the Skin. Oh, okay. Next movie. Yeah, okay. Um, I debated doing that one or Sexy Beast. Um, okay. But I figure we can talk about Sexy Beast while Should talking. Have a, a Glazerathon. Yeah. And also uh, revisit some of his many music, music videos, videos, which are great. And his commercials, which I didn't get into yet. But I think I watched it and was like, I'm going to put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to that someday. And, well, next week's that day. Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, I saw it in theaters. I remember enjoying it quite a bit. Yeah. I feel like we'll have lots to talk about. Hopefully. <laughs> what, what if we just get here and it's like, so, <sighs> that was a movie. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to wrap it up. Should we, should we plug our junk? Yeah. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Which is X-Rated Movies. At oh. X-Rated Movies. Follow us on Facebook. Rated X movies. Uh, email us. It's x.rated.movies at gmail. 
com. And rate, review, subscribe, like on iTunes. All that. Um, you can say whatever you want about us on iTunes in your review as long as it's five stars. <laughs> I feel like we need to, uh, we need to, I think people are nervous about being the first one to make a review. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm the first. <laughs> <laughs> that aren't part of the podcast already. Um, so maybe we should offer some sort of incentive. I think my friend actually left a review over the weekend. Oh, good, okay. Well, there, there's two reviews already. <laughs> You're not the first one. It's okay. And we won't berate you too hard if it's a negative review. Uh... <laughs> We might pick it apart. If you could just let us know in person, unless we have a lot of viewers out there, people we don't know, which judging from our Facebook likes, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of people neither of us know. Yeah. It's that title. <laughs> Reels them in. <laughs> people think that it's a podcast about porn. Not yet. I was going to say, <laughs> the next one, just X rated, no, no yeah. E. <laughs> Yeah, next week we'll see you with a hard, hard R rating. Uh, Thank you for listening. Join us next week.